Hey, this is DJ Ashford from Guns N' Roses and 6AM, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, this is Jammer of the heavy metal band Brew Force, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. This is Tony Maranaki of Total Music and Entertainment, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Oh! Welcome to episode 129 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John. The Iron City Rocks podcast devoted to promoting Pittsburgh's rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues music scene. Episode 129, we're going to feature a couple different things, all of particular interest to Western Pennsylvania. First and foremost, we have on the show from the band Guns N' Roses, and from 6 a.m., we have DJ Ashba joining us. Uh, We were lucky enough to catch up to him while he was on tour in South America. Talks all about uh, the 6AM project, which I know is uh, obviously very popular in the United States, and also about the forthcoming Guns N' Roses tour of North America, which will be hitting Youngstown, Ohio, which is a very short drive uh, for those of you who want to check that out. Also, we'll be featuring the next segment of our producer series featuring Tony Maranaki of Total Music and Entertainment. Uh, We're going to be talking about live sound, uh, which I'm sure is of interest to anybody out there who's ever played in a gig, in a bar, in a theater, whatever. So you want to check that out. And also joining us from the band Brute Force, uh, Jammer will be joining us. Uh, You're saying to yourself, who's Brute Force? What does this have to do with Pittsburgh? Brute Force is actually a band made up of uh, three guys, two of which have family ties back to the Jeanette uh, in Youngwood, Pennsylvania area. Uh, they are now living in California, and for a period of time they were professional wrestlers. So we're going to find out a lot of information about Brute Force, talk to them in uh, great detail. So without further ado, we're going to get into the interview with DJ Ashba of 6AM and Guns N' Roses. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome to the show from the band Guns N' Roses and from 6 a.m., DJ Ashba. How are you doing today, DJ? I'm doing great, man. How are you guys? I am doing wonderful. Uh, it's an honor to, to get a chance to talk to you. You're in Paraguay right now on tour uh, with Guns. Yes. Um, how is the yeah. tour going thus far? It's going amazing. Um, the uh, Rio was amazing. That was a lot of fun. I was finally uh, happy. It's been kind of a big dream to do that, and I'm looking forward to tomorrow uh, here. Um, but yeah, Argentina. Every every place has been just outstanding. You know, we had a huge warm welcome from probably 100 fans at the airport late late last night. And, wow. Um, just really cool. Really cool to be here. Yeah. Now you you were born um, Indiana. Correct. Yeah. And you, if if I read correctly, you had kind of gotten your first exposure to live music seeing Motley Crue. Um, yeah, that's true. And yeah, my dad took me to uh, Girls, Girls, Girls tour when I was sixteen, and um, I just remember that night. I was like, wow, you know. And it wasn't so. I was blown away because you know, um, just the whole live experience blew my mind, you know. And um, and it was kind of that night that that kind of turn that into a reality in my head because up till then it was you know you watch all these bands on you know mtv and you're like wow you know and you kind of almost you know viewed it more as oh that's just kind of a dream but you know seeing motley do it right in front of your face and you're like wow you know if they're up there doing this you know there's no reason i can't be one day and it kind of just clicked i guess that day for me yeah, I think a, a lot of uh, probably younger audience, you and I are roughly the same age. Uh, a lot of people missed out on that whole arena experience. I mean, there are bands certainly that can still do arenas in the United sure. States, but not like, you know, what was that, 1986, 1987, somewhere no. in the ballpark? You know. No, and now it's cool because, you know, that's what's so fun about being in Guns is, is it, you know, 
it is the full-on massive rock show, you know, yeah. the fire bombs and and the massive stages and the big sure. production, and it's just, it's really, really a cool show to see. Cool visually. Um, you kind of took a leap of faith and moved to Hollywood in, at the age of 19. Did you? Did your family go, or did you just say, I'm packing my things and moving to Beverly? <laughs> Pretty much, you know. Uh, my mom and my mom is uh, very well. My dad left when I was really, really young, but my mom was super religious, and I grew up without a TV, and so I'd have to go over to my friend's house to watch MTV and stuff. So, um, you know, I just kind of knew, you know. Uh, my brother, my older brother, left me a box of like, you know, records and mm-hmm. stuff, like rock records and Kiss records and. Um, a bunch of kids posters, so I'd have to hide everything like behind the furnace, and then, <laughs> uh, and then my mom found them, and they all went in the trash. But you know, I always knew, you know, that I was gonna, you know, I, it was weird. I was lucky, I guess, because I meet people right now, and uh, you know, they have no idea what they're gonna do for a living, and you know, I'll listen to them talk, but yeah, I don't know, you know. And and I just it was different. I kind of always knew it was just you know I started playing piano when I was three and um, drums when I was six and then I started playing guitar when I was nine. So I just kind of I, I was born into a musical family. Even though you know my mom's religious, she loved Elvis and she you know you'd always hear Elvis in the house and yeah um, you know stuff like that. Yeah, I mean Elvis certainly a, an incredible performer and his gospel work probably appealed. Uh, quite a bit mm-hmm. to that. Now you Thank spent God, a, because yeah, <laughs> at least I had something cool to listen to. <laughs> yeah, you don't tell them, tell the kids the school which album you're listening to. But um, you put out a solo album, uh, "Addicted to Friction," um, back pretty early on in your career. Obviously, you spent a tremendous amount of time, and it to me kind of spoke to a, a lot of the Mike Barney sort of shredders of the day. Um, yeah. Was, was that album, do you see that album ever being re-released, maybe? I mean, obviously your career is... Um, possibly. I mean, what's weird about that album is I was, I, I moved to L.A., and I was just working construction, because that's what I did back home, and, um, you know, this, this weird construction for some guy who owned a small little tiny label he was just starting up, and... I had no idea, you know, I was just doing little four-track demos and, and uh, you know, I'd go to work all happy and excited and play my new song I wrote uh, for my boss and I guess this guy overheard it out in the car playing and, and that's kind of how that all started and uh, he kind of put me on a little, gave me a little money to make a record and, you know, I think we only released like 2,000 copies. I mean, it was it's really hard to find. I don't even actually have a copy of it, but I have the the uh, four two inch tapes. I have I own the masters, which is kind of neat. So yeah, you know, I always thought about it. it'd be kind of fun to go in and and you know replay some guitars on it and you know and and kind of just or just remix it and put it out again and. But uh, I don't know, you know, the options there, which is nice. Yeah, I know. Uh, in, in researching this, I had listened to a little bit of on YouTube. Somebody uh, had put out some of it on YouTube. And, and everywhere I saw on any message board was, this thing is impossible to find. So It, it, it really <laughs> I don't need that one. Might be a good thing so. to put out on it as an iTunes or something. Um, you kind of yeah. got, got your your big break, I guess you would call it, um, teaming up with Mark Torino of the Bullet Boys, um, and that was a relatively short stint. And then you and um, Lestay yeah. of uh, Bank Tango. Like the Bullet Boys thing, the Bullet Boys thing was kind of weird. It was like um, I was really good friends with Lonnie, the mm-hmm. bass player, and they had lost their guitar player, and they had a tour coming up, and me being new to L.A., and I was just like, you know, I just, you know, I, I never really joined the band. I just kind of, you know, they said, hey, man, is there any way you could help us out to, to get through this tour? And that's kind of all that was. Now, you know, I I jumped at the opportunity to, to be able to, you know, get on a tour bus with a, a cool band from the 80s and play some cool rock songs. Sure. And, and it was a lot of fun. And just to be able to hang out with Lonnie and, 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 yeah, that was a lot of fun. And that led to beautiful, you know, me and Joe starting Beautiful Creatures because Bang Tango was uh, playing with, Bullet Boys, and that's where I met Joe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. he's, he's he's got some longevity. I have to give uh, Joe a lot of credit. I mean, he 
uh, you know, is, is a fan of that era of music and growing up, like I said, around the same time. The Bang Tango was moderately successful in the era, but they've had some real sure. longevity. I know even to this day they still tour in, you know, in our region and do quite well draw, drawing yeah. wise. So it's a testament. Yeah, Joe's a great guy. I mean, he, you know, I, I've always loved his voice and his attitude, you know, mm-hmm. towards music and, yeah. Uh, you know, and and I was really proud of what we created with Beautiful Creatures, and Warner Brothers treated us really good, and and we had a lot of fun doing that. Yeah. Now you went on to to kind of do a, the Ashbub sort of solo project, and rumors yeah, that worked out awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of rumors slid around that that you were uh, invited to to belong to the the Brides of Destruction. Um, Is there truth to that rumor? And how did you... Yeah, there is is a Nicky gives me shit to this day. Yeah, he called me up and, um, you know, uh, me being uh, me being me. You know, when I'm into something, when I put my heart into something, I really give it, you know, everything, everything I have. And I won't get into something or a project unless I believe wholeheartedly that I can that I can do it justice and, 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 you know, do something magical with it. So my, my head and my heart was wrapped around doing my own music and doing my own thing at that time. And, um, you know, I've always been a songwriter and a producer and, you know, and, uh, so I was heavily into doing that. So when he called, you know, I actually turned the gig down. Um, <laughs> so now you know, it's funny, you know, fast forward where I'm, you know, doing Motley Records and doing, sure. you know, 6 a.m. that he still gives me shit. He's like, I can't believe you turned it. Oh, was that so we laugh about it. It's a lot of fun. But, you know, we both look back and go, you know, it was, it was the right decision for both of us at that time, you know, so. Was that to work with Tracy in the band, or was that prior prior to Tracy being in the band? or That was prior to Tracy being in the band. Okay. I know. I had, yeah. I had recently spoke with Scott Coogan, um, the, the drummer of Brides of Destruction, for those not familiar, and he said it's amazing how many people still come up to him with that record to get it signed. You know, it's a yeah, great disc. Yeah, I, think- I love the record. I think I, I thought, you know, that's the thing is, you know, I, I thought Brides was a really cool band. They had some cool songs, and um, but at the time, you know, it just, you know, I was so focused on trying to get my own thing off mm-hmm. the ground, and, and uh, you know, so I just wanted to give that, you know, every part of me at that point. Sure. Now, um, 2007, you, you took on what I have to admit was a very interesting project for the moment. I heard it. You're writing a soundtrack to a book, um, and you guys really struck pay dirt with that, with the 6 a.m. Do you want to talk? How did you, you enter Nikki's universe? I mean, that's probably my first well, question. It, it was kind of weird because I was, uh, I, I, I was called, uh, by Danny Wimmer and to join this band on Atlantic called Operator mm-hmm. and um, and at the time I really didn't have a whole lot you know going on and and I heard the music and I was like oh this is really good and and one of my super good friends Paul Phillips from Puddle of Mud was in the band and he called me and uh, so I joined kind of joined that band briefly and I did the album with them and um, and uh, you know, but I don't know uh, if my tracks are even on the record. I have no idea what went on because I was only in it for a, a brief time. And mm-hmm. then I got a phone call. I remember I was at a car wash and, <laughs> and it was Nikki. And I was like, you know, I had no idea how he got my number. I, you know, I was just like, whoa, you know. Um, and he's like, hey, man, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I was kind of telling him what I had going on. And, uh, He's like, well, I want to come down and, and, and see those plays. So I just thought it was kind of weird. I was like, oh, that's cool, you know. So he came down, and we started hanging out quite a bit. And he invited me up to his house. Um, and I went up there, and literally we sat with an acoustic just bullshitting around. Mm-hmm. His, you know, he has a grand piano in his living room. And and we wrote four songs that day just sitting there, like, in, in really good songs. And nice. I... And, we kind of looked at each other and we're like, you know, we just kind of knew, you know, because a lot of people, you know, look for that magic, you know. It's kind of like a relationship. You look for that chemistry, that magic, when two people, three people sit sit down and, uh, you know, you just kind of finish each other's sentences. And maybe it's because I grew up on, on, 
you know, Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses and those bands. I just really <laughs> kind of, you know. Yeah, you've kind I of guess, assimilated. Uh, you know, was in the same brainwave as that. But, um, yeah, and we just kind of looked at each other. And he goes, hey, you know, would you want to partner up with me out at uh, Funny Farm, which is a studio he had built, and I, uh, you know, and produce and write songs for other bands. And I was like, oh, yeah, that'd be awesome. So I actually uh, didn't sign the deal with Atlantic and, and left Operator to team up with him just as a writing and uh, producing partner, and so I would, I went out to Funny Farm literally seven days a week, probably twelve to fourteen hour days, and then when he'd leave on tour with Motley, I would still be out there, and I had a full studio out there to to work out of, and it was awesome. And you know, while he'd be on the road, I'd start writing all these weird songs, and and you know, that's where I kind of started creating Xmas and Hell, and. Mm-hmm. And I was start playing around with all this orchestra sounds out there, and I was just kind of a kid in a candy store at that point. And I had no idea I could even do the scoring type of music, but it kind of opened a whole new door. Certainly. And I, I just really fell in love with it. And before you know it, uh, you know, we kind of, I, I remember I demoed up, you know, demoed up a bunch of songs and kind of sent them out and. And that's kind of how that actually started, you know, in a weird way. And then, um, you know, I'd been working with James Michael for many years. You know, he'd bring me in to do some recording on different records he would be producing. And I had no idea all this time that the guy could even sing. Like, yeah. I just thought he was this great producer. Um, and so it was just kind of happened organically. Like, And even, you know, as it was happening, none of us knew it was happening. Yeah. It's really weird. It's like, you know, we kind of sent James some of these songs, and James was like, wow. And he, James would write some songs and send them back, and it was kind of this cool thing. And then we were talking at the time to get, I remember Nikki called Stephen Tyler and Chester from Lincoln Park, and we were going to get all these cool singers and have a different singer for every song. And and James one day calls up and goes, hey, you know, uh, I'd like to, you know, Give it a shot. And, you know, sing on a song. And he, he sent it out, and me and Nikki's, you know, our jaws just hit the floor, and we're like, oh, that's it. That's, you know, and it kind of just happened. Yeah, now you guys have really churned out, I mean, two fantastic albums. Um, you know, you have to, what, you know, what's almost as a fan sounds like an odd thing, you know, the soundtrack to a book. Yeah. You know, and, and I have yeah. to admit, I didn't read the book until well after I had listened to the CD. But uh, even the new record, this is going to hurt. Uh, you know, is, is a phenomenal piece of I wouldn't call it metal, but you know, yeah. modern sounding rock music. Uh, you know, a great, great record. Um, do you guys have touring plans or any? Or, or is there a next phase to Six AM or just there, everybody? There, you know, there is. There's talk. There's talk about us. You know, finally doing some shows and and getting out there, which is is really exciting for everybody. And you know, of course. 6 a.m. has always been a labor of love, you know, and as much as people try to turn it into this, you know, like, hey, we are a band, I guess you could say, but we're more, we look at it more like we're, this is fun for us. This is what music was always supposed to be about, you know, like, you know, we're not writing for anybody other than, you know, let's let's write whatever's right for the for the message we're trying to get out there and, we're not trying to write for radio. We're not trying. It's just amazing to all of us that that you know that Walmart and Target are carrying an album called Heroin Diaries and yeah. and you know and, and I remember Target called us in the beginning and and said they wouldn't carry it because it you know said Heroin Diaries but they didn't understand was it wasn't you know we weren't like advertising like hey do heroin this is actually a really powerful message to to get out there and, and, uh, you know, so we, you know, they wanted us to change the name and we refused and we didn't care if they carried it or not. And they finally, you know, understood kind of where we were going with it. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the, uh, perfect, uh, you know, message to get out to somebody in that situation that's got that problem. You know, phenomenal, um, piece of work. Now, um, how did, how did you end up, in 
Axl Rose's camp. I mean, there's you know, as a kid growing up in in the area, you did this has to be kind of phenomenal. You're collaborating with Nikki Six, and now you're on the road with Axl Rose. This has to be very. Yeah, it's it's surreal. You know, sometimes I pinch myself, and I'm like, wow, you know, and it it's uh like when I was back doing the record. Uh, I met Axel when I was doing the Beautiful Creatures album at the Village, and he, they were in there, I believe, working on Chinese at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sharon Osborne would always come in uh, because her best friend, Gloria Butler, at the time, who was married to Geezer Butler, mm-hmm. uh, managed Beautiful Creatures. So Sharon would always stop in, and, and I was actually in the studio playing a piece by Randy Rhodes just waiting to record the beautiful mm-hmm. creatures thing. I was playing this piece called D on mm-hmm. my acoustic guitar. And I was just out there alone and Sharon walked in crying and I had no idea like she was even there. And she goes, I I want you to play this for Ozzy and I was like, Alright, so she walked me over and I played D for Ozzy and he's just got a tear in his eye and it was just this weird, surreal thing and then me and you know, Sharon became really good friends, and she walked me over to introduce me to Axel next door, and that's kind of where I first met him. And he's just a really cool, cool guy. And and then uh, many years went by, and then I got a phone call out of the blue uh, by managed by their management. Uh, no, by uh, let's see who called me. Katie McNeil um, gave me a phone call, and she had been managing me personally for for many many years, and. Now she does Neil Diamond and a bunch of different people, but uh, for a, for a moment they were managing Guns, and she called me up and she goes, "Hey, you know, on the down low, you know, Guns have been auditioning guitar players for about a year and a half now. They're trying to find the right guy, and and uh, they've gone through hundreds of people, and and uh, you know, is this something you'd be interested in going down and and checking out?" And I was I was like. You know, and I just got off the road with with 6 a.m. and we had a you know smash. Uh, well, you know, Life is Beautiful was mm-hmm. yes. on the top of the charts, and um, you know, I said, yeah, you know, I I knew, uh, you know, I'd have a lot of downtime because Nikki goes out and does the Motley Crue thing, which is amazing, and James produces records, so I'm like, yeah, you know, I'll I'll check it out. You know, it's something to keep me busy, and and uh, <clears throat> so I guess management called Axel and said, hey, you know, DJ Asheville wants to come down and blah, blah, blah. And, and, you know, I got a call back and, you know, he said if he even shows up to the studio, he has the gig. So there you go. It's kind of that that easy, I guess. But um, surprisingly, you know, when I did finally sit down with Axel, like, you know, he he really knows, you know, what's going on in, in the music industry. Like he knew my whole entire you know, career. He knew more about me than I ever thought. He, I, you know, so it kind of blew my mind the uh, the knowledge he does have. Yeah, you know, I mean, on the music scene and what's really going on, and and, and it's pretty cool. Yeah, he's in the obviously you guys are um, as you know we're doing this interview. You guys are going to be hitting the United States uh, pretty soon, which is yeah. you know long overdue. Um, is yes. there are there yeah, this is kind of, I'm sure, the million dollar Guns N' Roses question. Is there more material in the future, or absolutely, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's our main focus right now with it. And obviously, me being a songwriter and a producer, it's like, you know, <clears throat> like I said, I don't jump into anything just to jump into something. And and you know, when I got the phone call, um, it's something I knew. You know, like I grew up. Same same way when when I you know co-wrote and co-produced Molly Crew stuff, you know I knew that I could that I could bring something to the table because I understood the sure. music because I grew up on it and you know I, I feel the same with Guns you know and and you know Slash is you know I grew up you know cutting my teeth on people like Slash and I have the most you know utmost respect for his guitar playing and his style and stuff and and I really. I, I feel I get where he's, you know, where he's coming from on that sure. end, and and so you know, no one will ever replace him, and that's not not why I'm here. But it's just to do, you know, I felt I could do the ju- the, uh, the the gig justice as far as staying true to the vision of mm-hmm. of where 
where everything left off. And so, um, you know, that's kind of kind of why I got involved because I really wanted to work with Axel, and I thought, you know, I could really bring something to the table. And I think, you know, that the, the uh, you know, he has a lot of material. Sure. I mean, everybody thinks, you know, Chinese took took you know all these years, which it did. But what they don't realize is, you know, he has a, a, a just a shit ton of music and really good music, you know, just sitting there and. Um, and uh you know i i've written a bunch of stuff um bunch of stuff for him too so yeah i mean that's the goal is to to put out you know hopefully the, the next best guns and roses record you know that we possibly could together. yeah so, <laughs> i mean i can certainly see where having you in the band would be quite an asset i mean you you um seem to produce material at a feverish pace so um you yeah. know yeah you're kind of like having the producer the guitarist the art uh, director and the technologist all in the band at one time. Yeah. Um, yeah I don't sleep much. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I have a million things to do. All right, dude. Go. Well, thank, thank you. you so much. All right. Thank you so much for the Thanks. time. You take care. Okay. I always wanted to learn to play guitar, but never had the time. Then I heard about Progressions Music Studio. Progressions introduced me to an entirely new and convenient method of music instruction. They brought the music to me. The instructors from Progressions Music Studio came to my home with their knowledge and expertise, which saved me time and money. They worked around my schedule and tailored a program around my needs and skill level. Best of all, I learned to play music like a guitar king of the 1960s. We didn't spend all of our time with drills or tunes from the 1860s. Progressions Music Studio offers a lot more than guitar. In fact, they have instructors for almost all instruments. Now I can rock it out on my electric like never before. Just imagine what they can do for you or the budding musician in your family. Don't make excuses. Make music. Check them out on the web at progressionsmusicstudio.com. That's P-R-O-G-R-E-S-S-I-O-N-S. Musicstudio.com. Or call 724-777-4678. All right, again, that was DJ Ashba of the band Guns N' Roses and 6AM. If you haven't checked out 6AM, I highly, highly recommend it. They have two albums out now. The first was the soundtrack to the book The Heroin Diaries, so the the album is just called The Heroin Diaries. And then earlier in 2000, I believe around March, they released This Is Gonna Hurt. A uh, really cool album as well. So if you're into that kind of a newer melodic hard rock style, a really, really good album to pick up. And you can get that, as he mentioned, at Target and Walmart and all kinds of great places. So check that out. And Guns N' Roses. Yes, they're back. Uh, I know they've had sort of an ominous history in the last decade or so with live performances but uh i know the reviews from south america were great you can go online and find a lot of info out about them in mexico city the interview we did was uh when they were in paraguay um so you can check that out they're going to be coming to youngstown on december 7th to play a show you can get tickets at ticketmaster.com and uh i think dj will be a great influence for the band um dj is very uh, very productive musically uh, turns out a lot of products if you look at uh, ashbaland.com which is his website uh, creative visually he's a graphic designer he does um, a lot of technological stuff like he has an iPod app um, and, and turns out a ton of music not just 6am music but uh, a ton of music as a producer so I think having his influence in the band will certainly strengthen Guns N' Roses ability to produce music much quicker uh, and hopefully make it a little bit stronger. I know a lot of people are very down on Chinese democracy, and I can certainly see why it wasn't Appetite for Destruction, certainly. So hopefully this will be a, a good turning point for the band with him in there. So without further ado, we're going to get into an interview with uh, Jammer of the band Brute Force. Now, Brute Force is uh, an unsigned indie band at the moment, but uh, I was really interested to talk to them. They, uh, As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, two of the... Uh, people in the band uh two of the three actually a jammer and slammer uh parents were from Jeanette in youngwood pennsylvania which isn't far from the new stand turnpike exit for those familiar with the area uh they now live in california and i had mentioned at the top of the show as well they had spent a decent uh, amount of their career thus far as professional wrestlers um so that have made for kind of an interesting conversation you know to uh local products that went on to do something kind of fun so we're going to play a track from their album this is uh brute force uh taken from their uh first album this is called leather and chains then we're going to talk to jammer (laughs) 
guys on the line and, and kind of talk about your history. You guys have got kind of an interesting background uh, and, and a really phenomenal EP, so uh, it seemed like a great time to talk to you. Now, you mentioned off-air you had some uh, local ties. You want to talk about how you know, your experience with Pittsburgh? Yeah, our, our mom was born in Jeanette, which is outside of Pittsburgh, and then our dad was born in Youngwood, and then their parents are from that area. And we have a lot of, we have some, we still have relatives in the Pittsburgh area. So uh, whether we like the Steelers or not, we always got, we always pull from, but we remember as far as sports fans, because we're from that area, uh, we've been uh, Penguin fans for a long time and also Pittsburgh Pirate fans for a long time, even though the last 20 years, like everyone else there in Pittsburgh, we wonder what happened to the the Pirates, because they used to be like a winner. They used to have Steve yeah. Blass and Sanguin and Stars and all those guys, and we still wonder, just like you fans do in that area, you know, whatever the hell happened to them, but we do have local ties in that area for our family. Great. Do you guys get back this way much? Uh, no, we don't. As a matter of fact, my brother and I were going to go there not too long from now because our sister had just moved from Harrisburg. Mm-hmm. She, uh, she just left Harrisburg like a week ago. We were getting ready to go into that area, but we haven't been there for a while, but we miss it because we know that um, – Pittsburgh is one of the uh, top cities to live in, and the people are just really nice there. We just like the people and the atmosphere, and the girls are always hot looking too, so that helps yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> now you guys um, had formed. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Brute Force, uh, your band, was kind of a project you did prior to what became your career, at least up to that point. Is that correct? Right. Uh, shortly after high school, uh, and we played a lot of sports, so we never got to really into the band as much as we wanted to, but shortly after high school, my brother and I wanted to start a cover band, and we were living in Atlanta at the time, and we wanted to start a cover band and play around and try to make some money and have a good time at it, and uh, we were able to find a guitar player, but we were never able to find uh, a lead singer that could have the range to cover all the cover tunes that were out at the time. So, strangely enough, we were watching wrestling one day, 
and one of the wrestlers came on, and he was doing his little skit, and he was singing a song, and I'm thinking, yeah, that guy can sing, you know, maybe I can too. The very next day, we had an uh, we had a, a singer come over and try to sing, and the first thing he said was, look, I can cover a lot of ranges, but I can't seem like Lemmy killed by death. And, and at the time, we didn't really know who Motorhead was because we were still young. And in Atlanta, they didn't play Motorhead on the radio or anything like that. It was kind of, I don't want to say sheltered, but that seems how it was. So after he left, I turned on Motorhead Killed by Death, and I'm thinking to myself, if the wrestler can form their own uh, vocals around their music and Lemmy can form his own style around his voice, we can too. So that's how we became a three-man band, and then we started playing uh, around locally. We started getting a lot of gigs. And then that's when we got an opportunity that we couldn't refuse to, to get into wrestling. But that's how we had originally started our band, Brute Force. Okay. And then as far as wrestling, what, what roughly what year was that when you guys kind of broke into wrestling, you and your brother? Yeah, the early 90s. We went to the WCW school, which was okay. called the Power Plant. It changed to the Power Plant. Uh, we actually uh, trained there with Kevin Nash. And if anybody knows wrestling, they know who Kevin Nash, Big Sexy, is. Um, and then we started working our way up. It's kind of like a minor league progression. You go to the different minor leagues. You, it's kind of like, uh, I guess it's kind of like uh, music too. You just work your way up. You try to do the best you can do, have people see you, and then you move from that point. But we had started in the early '90s, and we wrestled for about 17 years until we came out to LA, and now we only do like something if it's involved in charity or something like that. Sure. Now, um, not to, to belabor the wrestling point, but I mean, you got into the WCW when it was really hot. I mean that was a big, big ticket item, especially if I recall correctly, in kind of the mid '90s when it started to get into that sort of Monday Night War with uh, what was at the time, I believe, the WWF. Right. Uh, right. Did you guys do like TV appearances, or did you stay mostly in kind of their minor, you know, regional circuits? You know, we got to a point where we were getting ready to be on their TV because we were working with with them and working with their guys, and then it was just better for us at the time. Uh, we actually got an offer from WWF. We had one night, um, um, I got a call like a, a month before Christmas, and I was a friend of mine um, hung out with my brother a lot, and he did a lot of the guys' voices. He would be like, uh, he would try to imitate uh, some of their voices. And uh, at the time, we had met Stone, Stone Cold Steve Austin then, and he was trying to do Stone Cold Steve Austin. But anyway, I was sitting at my home, and I got a call, and it was a guy saying he was Sergeant Slaughter. He would like to have... Uh, WWF take a look at us, and I'm, I hung up on him because I thought it was that guy. The guy <laughs> called back and said, no, I'm not who you think I am. I'm really Sergeant Slaughter, and we're thinking about bringing you guys into the WWF because we're cutting some salaries at the end of the year because it's a business, and they get rid of some people at the end of the year, and they have spots open. And he said he'd call me back in a couple weeks, and he did just to make sure that we were still ready to go. And then I never heard from him again after that. And we found out that he got replaced, Sergeant Slaughter, as the booker at the beginning of the year. He was willing to bring us in, but the new booker wasn't. But when we got to that point, it was just time for us to go ahead and keep wrestling. So a lot of wrestlers are able to make careers and wrestle and make money just doing independent leagues. Like you can go to Puerto Rico. We spent six months there. There's leagues around now, um, and they were before. You can go to different leagues in different parts of the country and, and pick up a pretty good paycheck. So that's what we were able to do mainly. The yeah. the biggest league for us was basically on ESPN. They had a league called Global Wrestling Federation, okay. and it was out of Dallas, Texas, and we were on TV quite a bit there, and that was the number one league that we ever got in. Yeah. Now, just out of kind of morbid curiosity, because I'll admit you're the first professional wrestler that we've had the pleasure of speaking to, the movie <laughs> The Wrestler, was that a fairly accurate portrayal? I remember seeing a, a biography on Jake Roberts. Uh, All right. Not that long ago, and then watching the wrestler, and they're very similar, kind of eerie, right? Uh, movies. Yeah, pretty, I mean, from an insider's perspective, were they pretty accurate in those movies? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you the honest truth because I pretty much tell people the way it is. Um, the wrestler I thought was spot on. It was exactly how it should be, except for when he cut himself with his razor. I, I've never known anybody to put their little razor blade on um, on their wrist in their wrist area, usually they put it on the end of their fingernail and put a flap over it. But other than that, that, that movie was spot on uh, how it is because once, you, once you've left the big limelight and you should still try to continue to make a living, it's really hard, and you really do take a beating. Um, when we were coming up, they didn't have that extreme wrestling where you hit each other with light bulbs and fall on tacks and 
go through uh, ladders and stuff like that. But regardless if you do or don't do that, you take a beating. It's a rough life, and um, you always try to try to keep wrestling because you hope that you can get picked back up again. But I, I thought The Wrestler was a pretty good movie, and uh, Mickey Rourke did a good job on that movie, too. Yeah, I, I you know, as, as a fan of wrestling growing up as a kid, I know the product you see on TV does not really mirror what I recall. I remember as a kid it was more like heroes and villains and had an right. air of comedy to it, where now you're right. I mean, there's a lot of very extreme stuff, and, and frankly, I don't know how guys have any kind of longevity, you know, jumping onto the floor yeah. from, you know. It's really changed a lot. You used to have the good guys versus the bad guys, and people used to be able to work a lot. And that means to have a, like you mentioned Jake the Snake Roberts, we did a match with him. Uh, one of our last matches in Georgia, we did a tag team with him. And you learn from guys like that. And Jake the Snake Roberts can work a whole match in a four-foot area inside the middle of the ring and not do anything but work in that area and have the fans going up and down and, and, and appreciating what he does. And that's called being able to work, and that's an art. And a lot of guys today, you just don't see that as much. It's just not a, it's, it's not what it used to be. So, Yeah, I remember you know guys like Ric Flair and Harley Race doing a match that would be 30, 40, an hour long. And it was entertaining, but now you know it seems like I don't know who would have the stamina to do what guys like Rey Mysterio do for an hour. You know, yeah. Just jumping and flipping. And, but yeah, anyway, it's, it's, I was just kind of curious. <laughs> you know, as like I said, this, you're our first professional wrestling guest, so it seemed like a, <laughs> A good guy to ask, an insider. We have a strange background for for musicians, so that's okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's it's in a way. I was thinking about this uh, before we talked. It is and it isn't because I mean, in professional wrestling, you're about charisma. You know, you're you've got to be entertaining, and, and sadly, that's something I see lacking in a lot of bands in the music industry is an air of entertainment. You know, there's a lot of great albums out there, but guys who, when they get up on stage, maybe aren't as interesting to watch. So, you know, you guys are used to being in front of cameras and things like that in crowds. So that probably makes you uniquely qualified to, uh, you know. Yeah, it makes a it makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference. Um, that's a good point that you brought up because, us like anybody else, when we were when we were kids growing up and we wanted to see somebody. Uh, go to concert. We wanted to make sure that we got a good show. You, you cared about the music, but you also wanted to be entertained. So we, yeah, I mean that's why everyone liked Kiss when they were young because they were just entertaining. But um, yeah, we we uh, we're used to being on stage, so we we do all we can to entertain people. So I I, I hear what you're saying. It's I, I, t- I totally agree with you. A lot of times now, people just stand there, and it's not the it's not what you expected. You like the music, but you like a b- little bit of entertainment with it too. Now, the album itself, the EP, um, the Brute Force, when I listen to it, the band that, that kind of struck it to me when I, I was trying to think of your sound, you have a very kind of new wave of British heavy metal, but I, I'm almost sensing Venom there, the band Venom, and maybe I'm way off base with what you guys might have listened to growing up. You mentioned Motorhead. Um, what were your influences? Well, I just want to tell you this about what you just mentioned. We've had a couple people mention to us that... Um, we do sound like Venom, and we take that as a compliment because we listen to Venom, and uh, a lot of people don't know who that is nowadays, but we take that as a compliment. Um, I was afraid you were going to say it was way off base, and you listen. No, no, no. You know what's funny is when we were playing, we've only started replaying last year, and uh, I always, I love Motorhead, my brother loves Motorhead, and we don't, we were trying not to sound like Motorhead, but we were trying to base ourselves off of Motorhead, Mm-hmm. But then when people would tell me things like you just told me, and they would also say it sounds more like this band or that band, then I realized that we do have kind of a unique sound. We don't sound like a, you know just one particular. You know, we have our own unique sound, which is good. Um, but we we listened to Venom before we like Venom. Actually, they're coming back out again. I heard playing some new music, yeah. but um, we like Motorhead a lot. Judas Priest, um, ACDC, Wasp, a lot of the early Wasp, a lot of early Motley Crue. We loved. Uh, Iron Maiden, ACDC, like I mentioned, um, Kiss. Those are the bands that we listened to that really influenced us a lot when we first got going. Now, it, the mentioning of Kiss kind of brings me to my next question. Uh, how did you guys align yourself with Bob Kulik? I mean, he's not a guy that you think of as someone you can just call up and say, hey, do you want to produce our, right. our EP? <laughs> how, how did yeah, you right. make that happen? Yeah, he's not advertising on Craigslist. Um, no. What, what had happened was um, we had actually 
found uh, a producer on Craigslist, and we were trying to record some of our songs. And every time we would record a song, it didn't come out the way we want. And we, so we'd go to this producer, and we'd go, we'd bring a Motley crew and a Motorhead and a Wasp CD, and go, look, I want this kind of sound. Can you get it for us? And the guy would say, yeah. And every time we were finished, we could never get that sound. So we were kind of uh, bummed out because you think you're in L.A., you're in L.A. and you think you could find somebody that would know metal, but it's kind of surprising. You, you, unless you're in that group of people, you can't find anybody because it's not. there's a different brand of metal today. Yeah. We were working out in our gym, and I say we, my brother and I were working out in our gym, and we could see this guy go back and forth every other day. And we're both looking at ourselves going, that guy looks really familiar. Who is that guy? So finally one day when he walked by, we realized it was Bruce Kulick who used to be in KISS. Mm-hmm. So when we finished working out, we when he when he got in the gym, we had just finished our workout. We kind of walked over to him and kind of cornered him, and he had this look on his face like, "Hey, who are these big gorillas coming after me? You know, I didn't do anything. What do they want?" So we came over and uh, we introduced ourselves. We told him that we were used to be big Kiss fans, and that we were wrestlers, and we tried to we we're trying to get our band going again, trying to record good our songs and make them, you know, the way we want them to, we're having difficulty. Would you know anybody that could actually do that in this area? And he goes, yeah, my brother, he does, uh, he has a studio. He, he works with a lot of different people. I'll give him your number and you can also call him and I'll have him call you. And then the next day we had actually called Bob and he invited us to a studio. And for the first hour, all we did was talk wrestling because he was a big fan of wrestling too. And then we got into our music and then what he could do, and then uh, that's how we got hooked up with Bob Kulik. We recorded with him. Okay. And then was this a was this a self um, funded project? Or you guys aren't? Yeah. From, yeah. It was self funded. Great. Yeah. And that's what actually struck me when I looked at the CD. You know, I, the one thing I noticed that was not on the back was a UPC. And I'm thinking, okay, right. that's probably you know kind of an independent band. I think Bob Kulik probably doesn't come cheap, and that's why I was curious how that all came to be. You're you're absolutely correct. He, <laughs> he doesn't come cheap, <laughs> but he heard our stuff that we had, and uh, what was done. I'll tell you the difference. We, he heard our stuff that we had by another producer supposedly that knew what he was doing. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful to him, but then if you match it up against what we did with Bob, it's like, well, some people know what they're doing, some people don't. And Bob was great to work with. Uh, very nice guys from New York, so he has a little bit of a New York attitude where he's kind of straightforward. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's good. To, once you get to know him, he's good to joke with. He made us better musicians. He brought out the best of each one of us in our instruments and my vocals. And uh, he's really. We have a lot of other songs, and we're going to record some other songs with him soon. But uh, he's just. He was. We really got fortunate that we were able to, to meet him. And if we had our choice, we'd work with him all the time because he's really just a good guy to work with. But he knows what he's doing. And when you go in there to his when you go into a studio first, you're kind of overwhelmed because we are because we're still new in the music business. But he has all these gold records on the wall from everybody. He's worked with Diana Ross, Meatloaf, Twisted Sister. You know, he's worked with Wasp, Motorhead. So he's worked with a wide range of people. So he really knows what he's doing, and he's excellent at his job. Yeah, yeah. I recall just. Um a year or so ago, he did like a charity Christmas album. Right. Kind Sinatra. Of thing. Yeah. yeah, there was that too, the uh, Sinatra album. Awesome stuff. So let me ask you this. What is, what is the what is the, the future hold for Brute Force? Are you guys going to try to shop the album around to like major labels, or are you guys going to do some touring? Well, we're doing everything. We are trying to shop it to some major labels, and we have a little bit of interest. Um, if we need to do a full CD or full album, we'll do that. We have plenty of songs available. We just really wanted to throw the CD out there, the EP, excuse me. We wanted to throw that out there to see if we'd get any response to kind of put ourselves on the map, and it's worked. So if we need to do a, a whole album soon here, we will. We are trying to tour. We are trying to set that up. We are trying right now to get in with some pretty big bands. I don't want to say anything because I, I, if I jinx myself, and I look like a fool saying we're going out with these guys and it doesn't work itself through. Uh, we are trying to, like I mentioned, work with a couple of bands to tour, uh, maybe at the end of this year, but definitely very beginning of next year. We're also trying to work on finalizing, working some monster jams, which are those truck jams they have in stadiums. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're out on the West Coast beginning of next year. They're a couple times in L.A., a couple times in San Diego, uh, Sacramento, and then their finals are in Las Vegas in, in uh, March, and we're trying to work on getting a couple of those gigs 
and then we're also trying to push ourselves or work ourselves to tour in Europe too. So we're ready. We're on the verge of doing a lot of things coming up. It just has to play itself out before we're able to, to say anything or finalize things. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's it, it's amazing the different outlets you mentioned, the Monster Jam, but the, you know, the kind of the different avenues for bands to get their music out. Sometimes it's almost better to land yourself as the theme song to an event. You know, I was just thinking of the band Black Tide who had the theme song to one of the WWE pay-per-views and you know, some stuff like that could garner probably more uh, publicity than, you know, a high-budget music video does these days. So it's, it is kind of interesting to see, you know, how that stuff plays out. But I wish you guys all the best, Jammer. I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show, man. Oh, no problem. It's nice talking to you. Anybody from uh, Pittsburgh area, we're more than happy to. It's a good area. We miss all the people there. Yeah, and hopefully the Penguins will uh, bring us home another cup this year. Yeah, if I don't know if they're going to be able to. If uh, if Sid doesn't play, I don't know how bad. He must be more hurt than what they let Jan to be, so I hope yeah. he's okay. Yeah, we'll keep our fingers crossed, man. Well, thank you for the time, man. Oh, no problem. No problem at all. <laughs> heard was a song called like you from tony maranaki tony as you uh, if you're a listener of the show regularly has been on with us now for the past uh, probably close to two months with something we call the producer series uh, tony owns an entertainment uh, company that does live sound uh, also does recording studio work etc so what we've done and for those not familiar with the show is basically tried to break down all aspects of recording engineering mastering mixing and everything you need to know as a musician who is interested in recording or playing out live here's what you need to know to be this to to be a little bit educated when you're dealing with a producer or a sound man uh, i think a lot of people just kind of you know hit go on the uh, garage band or something and record and and you can do fairly well as um many of you are probably experiencing you can do a lot of great things with those but there's a whole different level of professional recording out there so I encourage you to listen to this episode of the producer series on live sound but before I jump into that I want to mention signal to noise.fm our sister show just released an awesome podcast speaking of uh, garage band and iPads and things like that Aaron, who is also the person that does this interview in the producer series, has done a full podcast on things you can do with the iPad as a musician. Um, does quite a bit of focus on GarageBand, but also talks about things like um, using uh, Boss's tools, Digitex tools, um, sheet music. He talks about um, the uh, cakewalk and some things like that. So want to check that out signal to noise.fm or if you go to ironcityrocks.com and click on the drop down at the top for iron city rocks network you can find out more information about that so without further ado aaron our host and tony marinaghi of total music and entertainment on live sound ladies and gentlemen welcome to our show we have our third installment with of the producer series with tony marinaghi tony how are you doing today pretty good how are you doing aaron Great, great, great. Looking forward to our questions today and uh, the topics we're going to cover. Our uh, first topic will be live sound. 
So I guess the first question I have here is, what makes live sound different from making a record? Well, what's the difference? Because you, you, there's mixing involved both ways. What's the difference between live sound and recorded sound? Well, we're right in my wheelhouse there, brother. Uh, live sound is, um, you can't be a meek person, man. Uh, you can't melt under pressure because anything could happen. Uh, I like live sound as opposed to mixing in the studio because, you know, anything can happen anything and uh it's a really gratifying uh, experience in that you are instantaneously responsible for that entire audience's uh listening i mean um what they're hearing is totally because of you so it could be a bad show <laughs> could be a good show uh but mostly it's because of you and how you're mixing all right so what, do you, what would you say then are some of the top challenges of live sound? Well, the first thing you face uh, is really hanging the speakers. Uh, there's so many different venues, so many different types. Um, you know, my experience in, in, uh, in major concerts probably wouldn't um, translate directly to maybe some of your listeners in a sense, but uh, the first thing you want to do is really establish, you know, like where you're playing, and you want the speakers to be uh, either straight with or slightly in front of um, the main area. That way you avoid feedback, things of that nature. Um, some people need to you know, hear themselves, so you need to set up a system uh, that will allow a speaker to be placed in front of them to hear themselves back. That's called the monitor system. You really don't want to mix your mains with your monitor. You don't want to like try and cheat and hear yourself uh, through your mains because um, what happens is the sound man, he's really mixing to the venue. So if it's a smaller club, you know, you sometimes really don't have to have the whole band through the sound system. Uh, you know, you got guitar players that think they're playing on a big stage, but um, you're playing in a little venue. Yeah. So you're probably loud enough. The drum set, in a sense, is probably loud enough, but you're just enhancing maybe the sub on the kick that's not making it through. Uh, you know, the hi-hat, things like that. Um, definitely the lead vocals, because I haven't met a singer alive that can scream over a rock band for a whole set. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, <clears throat> you're really in charge of, like, everything, you know. Uh, but, you know, it's more in balancing everything. Like, uh, it's not so much what's going through the sound system, but you've got to kind of leave out some things that don't really need to be there. Uh, in a bigger venue, you know, you're obviously going to be responsible for for everything, you know, coming through. Uh, there's been situations where, um, I mean, I've mixed for, to give you an idea, uh, I got my start with a knock like Tony Orlando and Dawn. And then, you know, graduated to uh, some other acts, Bon Jovi, U2. So you got a big, big difference in sound level there. In fact, there was uh, times when mixing with Tony Orlando and Dawn and Andy Williams and uh, acts like those where you're in like a uh, the venue that's at the hotel or something. So, um, you know, your audience is a little bit older, <laughs> so you have to really watch the sound because if you start letting uh, that sub get too loud, you can start setting off uh, somebody's uh, pacemaker. So you had to really, really be wow. careful. Of, yeah, <laughs> I've only seen it happen one time. It, it, you know, you, you just kind of go, that's not really happening. But, I mean, it's possible. The way the human heart, you know, beats and stuff without giving you a complete medical uh, essay here. But your heart beats at 40 hertz and 65 hertz. So those aren't really frequencies that you hear, but you feel them. And it also happens to be the frequency of your house. Your house is at 65 hertz. So when somebody gets shocked and their heart stops, it's because they're only receiving the one signal for an extended period of time. So if you beat on somebody's chest, you know, you can sometimes get their heart going again. Wow. Same thing if you were to maybe get a 40 hertz signal to somebody or 60 hertz signal, depending on what, uh, what their... Um, pacemaker or heart was you know beaten at you can revive it or whatever the heck you do uh but 
without going into, you know, crazy discussions, you can mess some people up. So you have to really be careful. At the other end of the scale, the Bon Jovi's and the U2's, you know, it's just, it's all about loud. But, um, you know, I kind of pride myself on being a real good mixer. <laughs> and uh, it's paid off for me because that's really um, how I made my way in the, in the business, and it's opened up every other door strictly because of that. But, you know, making it sound like you're listening to a very loud stereo. You know, there's some concerts you go to, you just can't wait to get to, and you're just like, I couldn't hear nothing. You know, it was, uh, the vocals were screechy. Feedback, you know, it's, feedback's a big (laughs) no-no. Yeah. Uh, You know, but um, it happens, you know what I'm saying? But you should really especially when you're playing a, a bigger volume, if you're a, a, I'm sorry, bigger venue, if you're a band, you should have somebody back there just to kind of keep things under control. Or if you know somebody that's capable, you should certainly use them. Um, a sound man can make or break a live, uh, a live show very easily. And if you've got somebody important that's supposed to be at the show, you definitely got to have a, a sound man there. So what are some of the top mistakes, then, that fans make live? What are some of like, the, the, the big mistakes that you see people making with their live sound? Um, well, probably maybe the second half of my answer to your last question and, and this one here is um, really underestimating the power of the microphone. <laughs> you know, uh, sometimes <clears throat> somebody will set up, like, one mic for a whole drum set, um, kind of goes back to what we were talking about in one of our earlier discussions about recording. You really want to make sure that everything's uh, mic'd up good and close um, and that uh, the sound man's able to uh, mix everything. Um, sometimes bands just kind of go with um, without a monitor system. Uh, again, trying to cheat using your mains. You know, you got to hear yourself. You're at a high volume if you're a rock band. I mean, that's pretty much what your listeners are. Um, and the singer has to hear himself. If, if he can't, he's going to be out of key. <clears throat> it's just going to sound really bad. So I'd say the two biggest mistakes are really not micing something upright or having a sound man there just to go up and down with the volume or something like that and not actually having a monitor system. Okay. Now let's take that further there. Cause, um, <clears throat> I've experienced both of those. So a lot of bands starting out, especially like I remember back in my days, we didn't have, you know, a proper sound system. We didn't have uh, a lot of money to do that sort of thing. So what are some tips for mixing if all you have are mains and a backline? Like what are, what are some, some tips that we can give to bands then? That's a very good question. And uh, one I'd like to answer by saying uh, lower your volume, really. Um, okay. When you start playing too loud – you know, I try to compare performing music with playing sports. If you start going too hard, um, if you start trying too hard, you, you're, you're trying to do things that you're incapable of, or maybe it's something that you're capable of, but because you're trying too hard, it's not really a natural thing. So I think if you pull the volume back, and if you're a band, you start with the drummer, and, you know... I think if a drummer is more realistic and he doesn't say, well, this is how loud you got to play, and dude starts playing like John Bonham, I mean, you know, chances are he's not going to hold that volume through an entire set. So you just let the guy start playing and the rest of the band uh, try to follow in. And um, if you pull the volume back, you're more in control. It also allows your vocalist to project further. Um, another trick that I try to uh, tell... Um, really like any band, rather than have like two big columns of speakers, if you actually have four stands of smaller speakers, it'll actually make your sound more clear. Because rather than two speakers trying to spread sound out to an area that's probably physically impossible for it to hit entirely, if you get four speakers and have two on each side or, you know, two in front of the stage, maybe two in the back of the club or something, your dispersion pattern allows the speakers to cover more area. So you don't need like 
four massive columns. You would need four smaller speakers as opposed to two massive columns. And when you go and rent those, there's a lot of bands, as I'm sure you know, don't really have that gear when they yeah. start out. It's a lot cheaper just to rent, you know, four smaller cabinets, maybe two stands. You know, you put two on top of a table in front of the stage or, uh, you know, um, the other two in another place in the club or something. But the more speakers you have, the more area you can cover, the less volume you need and the less volume that the band needs to play with. So it kind of works its way down, as you can see. That's really that, that, that's really um wow. I'm like I'm just trying to take that link. So I'm like, boy, that makes so much sense. <laughs> Doesn't it? It really does. Because I remember back in the day, like when I went from a 15 inch speaker to um, a couple of 10 inch speakers. You know, just using the two tens versus one fifteen, I got a much punchier sound. Even though everyone's like, oh no, bass, you need to have these big speakers. I well, you know, I'm sorry, but to tens. yeah, but you know what? I, and this is just a technical thing that um, I just happen to know. Yeah. But the physical properties and the way speakers are made, um, I used to work for a company called Yamaha, and we used oh, yeah. to go around the country um, uh, you know, demonstrating sound systems and PAs, and we used to have like a Yamaha up against a, uh, uh, what's the Forsyth um, Eastern Acoustic Works, and then the other one was a JBL, and... You know, I, have, I used to have to sit there and cheat and have the other ones blow up before the Yamaha, but, I mean, the Yamaha was nowhere near back in those days up to that yeah. up to that caliber. But the properties of a 10-inch speaker, to finally get to my point, the yeah. properties of a 10-inch speaker will produce more bass than a 15-inch speaker. Huh. Yeah. Wow, so old Leo Fender had it right when he did his 410 bass, man, huh? Yeah, that's the reason why he did it. Yeah. All right, and that brings us to a close this time. You can visit us at ironcityrocks.com, facebook.com forward slash ironcityrocks, twitter.com forward slash ironcityrocks, and youtube.com forward slash ironcityrocks. Also, on our website, you can enter to win five-finger death punch tickets for Stage AE. The deadline to enter is Halloween at 11 p.m., so you want to get your entry in. We'll be drawing a ticket winner probably the first day of November, give or take. Uh, depending on how busy we get. So head on over there and enter that. And also watch the contest page there for other upcoming contests. I'm sure we'll have something uh, in the future. want to thank Tony from Total Music and Entertainment, as always, for coming on and educating us. Jammer from Brute Force for coming on and for not kicking my rear end. And, of course, DJ Ashba of 6AM and the Mighty Guns and Roses for taking the time out of his touring schedule to talk to us about that. So, again, Youngstown. December 7th, Guns N' Roses makes their return. So, you want to check that out, and we'll talk to you next time.